0: Church, if you could open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We'll be in verse 27. Mark 8, 27. We find ourselves very much in the center of the Gospel of Mark, both uh, kind of size wise, that's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, but also there's a narrative arc. And what I don't want to be lost on us is that there is a narrative arc to the Gospels. There's a structure. There is a form. There is a pattern. And the reason for this is there's intentionality in the Gospels. Both all Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels have a pattern, a structure, and intentionality. They are literature. They are inspired literature. They're divine literature. They're inscripturated, canonical literature. But they are also, they have structure. They are good literature. They are not special only because they are the word of God, but they are special because they are God's word and it is good. And where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8 is a, a stunning and spectacular acknowledgement, a confession from the apostle Peter as the representative apostle of the divinity of Christ and of his role as Messiah. So look with me in Mark chapter 8, looking in verse 27. It says, And Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he was asking his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, on this confession that you built your church. We are an apostolic church. We are a biblical church. But mostly, we are a Christian church. We follow the true concrete bedrock reality Of the identity of your Son Jesus Christ. Let that dictate us. Let that dictate our church. Let that dictate who we are as individuals. Let that dictate our identity. But uh, over these next moments, Lord, let that dictate our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Jesus? You know, there's a lot of questions that can be posed as the most important question. What is the meaning of life? To be or not to be? Chocolate or vanilla? There's questions that are out there that really, uh, have, have for, for individuals, for cultures, for, for movements, have become the pivotal question on which they rest. Questions are helpful because questions, they they force people to think and they force people to respond. And so as valuable as is to say, here's who we are, this is what we believe, the reason why we use something like a catechism is because it forces people to interact with and to contemplate the answer. And so here you have, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asking his apostles... The most essential question that can be asked, who do you say I am? Can you think of a more important question today? Can you think of a more important question anywhere? Because there's no question that has implications that are eternal. If you hear this question or if you receive this question, your answer to this question ultimately determines who you are before a holy God, and it establishes where you will be for eternity. This question is the most pivotal question that can be asked. And so, even before we get into our sermon, even before we get into our text, I want to challenge you and encourage you, any evangelism that you do, this question has to be a part of this. If you do not ask people who Jesus is, Your evangelism is ultimately missing the point of what it means to share the good news. Because the good news is not that there's a Jesus out there, that it's worth kind of having an idea about. Evangelism is about who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the question. And as Peter confesses, he is the Christ, he is the Christ. So as we just read, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus goes out with his disciples, as it says in verse 27, and he's talking with them. Now, where they are, Caesarea Philippi, is interesting. It's fascinating. There's so much detail there. But for the sake of the entire thrust of this morning's passage, we're not going to spend too much time on it. But just, just to you know, suffice it to say, it's a significant place. Who do people say that I am? And so Jesus actually starts by not asking Peter and not asking the apostles who he is. He says, who do other people say that I am? Now, this is actually a disarming way to start asking this question because he allows for wrong answers. This is a remarkable teaching mechanism this is a great way to allow them the space to say the wrong thing and it still be acceptable because what does he say he says who do people say that i am and they told him saying john the baptist others say elijah but others one of the prophets now we'll talk about their answers here and again in a moment but look at verse 29 and he continued questioning them but who do you say that i am This is such an important thing to do when we are asking these questions. It's not enough to kind of have vague, nebulous, or textbook answers. Both of those are equally inappropriate because they are simply taking information that exists out there and just kind of regurgitating it. It's it's being able to give an answer, but not knowing what the answer means, Jesus asks this question and says, but who do you say that I am? He's asking for a confession. He's asking for a profession. He's asking for some sort of solid statement on who he is in the minds of the apostles. And so Peter speaks up. And in verse 29, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Peter's confession is right. Peter's confession is true. Now, it's important to remember, does Peter have a full understanding of what Jesus' life and ministry entails at this point? No, as we'll see here in a moment, he doesn't. In fact, he is very hesitant to embrace the fullness of the ministry of the Messiah, of the Christ at this point. But his confession is right. He gets it. He knows that Jesus is the Christ. And we have to remember that on the heels of last week's passage, this is such an important and profound pinnacle of the narrative of the Gospel of Mark because last week we saw how Jesus was chiding the apostles because they were like that blind man who had only been partially healed and they could only see a little bit abstractly. Remember, the blind man came to Christ and Christ healed him partway and he saw people walking around like trees, and then he healed them fully. And the purpose of that wasn't because Jesus had lost his mojo, wasn't because he didn't know what the man actually wanted. It was to illustrate how his apostles, among many others, were on this journey where they were being brought from a place of not seeing, to partially seeing, to seeing. And here you have only momentarily in the flow of the text, after the apostles were only seeing kind of fuzzy, now a Peter, on behalf of the apostles, sees more fully. He acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. And why is that? Jesus brought him to this point where he sees more fully. He did not give up on Peter He did not give up on the apostles, even though they had been making mistakes, even though they had a lack of faith. Christ stuck with them. He brought them to the point of this confession. But what does Christ mean? This morning in our catechism time, we define these words that we use all the time, sacrament, ordinance, There's even, we had a conversation prior to the beginning worship service about sometimes there's these Christianese words that we say all the time, but do we know what they mean? This is an essential thing for us to stop and slow down. What does Christ mean? I, I don't mean to sound blasphemous, but I, I, I do mean to uh, truly point out a problem that if you polled many evangelicals out there, they may very well think that Christ was Jesus' last name. It's, it's worth chuckling at, I think. What does Christ mean? Christ is Messiah. Christ means anointed Christ means a special one. It is a title. It is a designation. And it is used interchangeably, again, with the idea of Messiah. Christ being our anglicized version of a Greek word, Messiah being an anglicized version of a Hebrew word. It means anointed, the set-apart one, the special one, the designated one who has a purpose. And so the fact that Peter confesses that Jesus is this Christ, is this Messiah acknowledges that Jesus is not just a special teacher, but he is the fulfillment of the anticipation of the entirety of the people of God for the the, the fullness of the Old Testament. That is summed up in, in Peter's confession. So although Peter doesn't have the fullness and the understanding of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the ongoing mediatorial ministry of Christ for all time until he returns for his people, He doesn't have that full scope of Christology, as it were. What he does have is an understanding that at that point in redemptive history, the one that they had been waiting for was here. The one that they had been anticipating was here. That Jesus was the Messiah that all of Israel and ultimately all of mankind had been waiting for. And he was there. And that's all that was expected. Jesus didn't need Peter to be the Peter that we read about in the, in the epistle of, that it bears his name. We, we don't, Jesus didn't need Peter at this point in time of redemptive history to be the Peter that we read about in the, in the book of Acts. All that Jesus needed Peter to be was to acknowledge that he was indeed the Messiah. The Jews at that point were waiting for a prophet. They were waiting for a priest. They were waiting for a king. And actually it's 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 very well documented that in the first century that there was there were significant components of the religious Jewish movement that actually had a twofold messiah. They thought there would be a kingly political messiah and also a religious messiah. We oftentimes think of this this political Messiah because when we think of the triumphal entry, when we think of the, the reason why Christ was trying to keep his identity a secret, as he even does here in verse 30, that the primary reason for that was because there was such a hunger in the first century for liberation and freedom from Rome, that the Jews were willing to latch on to anybody who showed some sort of spark of revolution, some sort of spark of reformation, that Christ in his wisdom said, we're not going to latch these sorts of implications or hopes on me because that's not what I'm going to be doing right now. But that was a legitimate hunger and a legitimate desire for there to be some sort of political Messiah. But because this seemed like such a far-fetched idea and because of where they were at a time and a culture and a religion, they bisected and they divided this messianic hope between two figures. But Christ fulfilled both of those roles. Something that we see play out through the, Old Test- in the New Testament, both through an, an exposition of Christ's life and an understanding of his ministry, is not only that he functions today as perfect prophet, perfect priest, and perfect king, but he fulfilled all of those patterns that had been established in the Old Testament. He was better than Moses, he is better than Elijah, he is better than David. He fulfills all those things. And once again, Peter confesses, you are the Christ. Two quick words. I already mentioned briefly in verse 30, why the secrecy? The secrecy, as we have already mentioned countless times through the gospel of Mark, which we're going to actually see, start to dissipate. Christ's calls for secrecy begin to dissipate as we move through the central point of the gospel of Mark now towards the end because we're moving rapidly towards the cross, But the secrecy is primarily because there was such a fervor and a zeal for political revolution. And by by more attention being brought to Jesus than already was there, it would have moved things in a direction that was contrary to this more fully-orbed, religious, political, and also uh, ultimately kingdom-focused movement that Christ was trying to communicate to his people. that's the first thing. Why the secrecy? The second thing, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do think it bears mentioning because it's such a pivotal aspect of understanding the last 2,000 years of church history. In the parallel accounts of this statement, in the parallel accounts of this confession of Peter, Jesus responds by saying, upon this rock I will build my church. This is often, or this is interpreted by, the, the, by Rome as establishing Peter as the Pope, that you now, Peter, are the man. I'm passing the baton. I'm passing the torch off to you. Now, this is a very untenable position, but consequently, what most of Protestantism and certainly most of evangelicalism has done in the, in, over the last 500 years is to say, no, 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 no. Jesus is only saying the confession Anyone who says Jesus is the Christ, that is the rock on which the church is built. As is often the case, you have the pendulum that has swung too far to one side, saying that Peter is the first pope. And then you have the the pendulum swung to the other side, that Peter is nothing special, the apostles are nothing special, it is just these words, this idea of identifying Jesus as the Christ, that is the foundation. A much more measured and a much more biblically faithful way to go about understanding this is the understanding that, yes, the confession matters, but the apostles matter too. Peter is indeed the foundation of the church, as are the other 11 apostles. Notice here, and, and, and again, we're not going to get into the parallel accounts of it, but this, this, Peter is, even in Mark's kind of brief account, the spokesman For the apostles, you say that they are talking in verse 28. He's talking to his disciples in verse 27. And in verse 31, he continues to talk to them. So although Peter is the spokesman, the apostles are indeed the ones who are in view as Jesus is having this conversation. And as you, again, go to these parallel accounts, he, (coughs) he is indeed talking to all of them as this foundation on which the church is built. And as we already said this morning, we are an apostolic church. Our scripture is apostolic scripture. Our, our teaching is apostolic teaching. This movement is built upon, this, 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 this kingdom movement on earth is built upon what Christ did and then invested into these, well, 12 actually becomes 11 men to go out into all the world baptizing and making disciples. And so we do not acknowledge that Peter here is because he was the first one to say it. Is the first pope because, as in a few minutes, he's going to say something quite fallible. Which, again, if you know anything about the doctrine of papal infallibility, it kind of runs into these problems of saying something authoritative and then a few minutes later saying something very unauthoritative. But then also, uh, it's very true that, the, in, in very clear throughout the flow of the biblical history, that the apostles had a pivotal role to be the foundation of what would be the church. What we look back on today was built upon their work, not because of who they are, not because of what they did, because was of what Christ did through them. (coughs) So again, that's that's worth just speaking on very briefly because it's such an essential part of understanding the last 2,000 years of church history. So who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Peter confesses this. But I want to go back and look at one thing. He is the Christ, but he can't be anything else. He can't be anything else. He can't be anything less than. He is the Christ. Any other confession is wrong. Notice what they said in verse 28 when Jesus asked them, who, who do people say I am? It says, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Now, real quick, why would people say these things? Well, we already know why they would say John the Baptist, because a few weeks ago, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. Herod apparently wasn't super religious, but he believed enough to believe in reincarnation. He thought that the ghost of John the Baptist was there to haunt him after he beheaded him. So, why would people say John the Baptist? Well, because Herod was in a really bad place, and he was saying that Jesus was probably John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Why would they say Elijah? We have to remember, Elijah was assumed into heaven. He was one of the few people that Scripture says did not die an earthly death but what was brought into the presence of God. And Scripture says that Elijah would return. And so people said, this is a logical thing. Jesus is doing miracles. Elijah did miracles. Jesus is a great prophet. Elijah was a great prophet. It just makes sense. The problem with that is, and that assumption, is that we already read that Christ pointed out indefinitely that John the Baptist himself was Elijah. So it's kind of interesting and funny, not, again, not in any sort of reincarnation sense, but simply in the forerunner, simply in the pointing sense, that he was, had, had the mantle of Elijah as this powerful prophet. But again, it's funny that you have John the Baptist and Elijah are both these misconceptions of who Jesus is, when they both had the role and the function of pointing to the Messiah. But others, they say, one of the prophets. So there's this acknowledgement that Christ, again, had this prophetic role. So as we said, there was anticipation of this great prophet, this great king, this great priest. But only pegging Jesus as one of those, and not as all three, misses the point of who he is. John and Elijah were good, but John and Elijah are old wine. They're fine for old wineskins, but they're not fine for what Christ is doing. The prophets are good, but they are the wrong kind of cloth for the new kind of garment that is being made and being formed by the kingdom that is coming into fullness because of the ministry of Christ. He can't be anything else. Now, again, I, I want to really put a fine point on this. Calling, telling somebody they have the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Elijah, the ministry of prophet, is a good thing. It is a nice thing. The problem is 99% doesn't get you all the way. It's not full. It's not all the way. And only giving Jesus platitudes, only giving him kind words, giving him a very high position, giving him a very high rank, but not giving him the fullness of who he is, is less than he deserves. This is a wonderful question for us to be asked today. This is part of that question we need to ask. Who is Jesus? Is he 99%? Is he almost good enough? Is he a really good teacher? Is he a really good guy? Is he really powerful, but not all powerful, not all the way? He can't be anything else, thank you, son, besides Messiah. So he is the Christ. He can't be anything else. But part and parcel with this is the truth that he must be humiliated and exalted. He must be humiliated and exalted. So continue looking at Mark chapter 8. Verse 31 says this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here you have for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, a recording of Jesus being so explicit about what his ministry entails. So explicit about the fact that there is this great humiliation that must come before the great exaltation. This is counterintuitive to the conceptions of Messiah. They thought it would be triumphal entry and uphill from there. They thought it would be this, all these miraculous signs and only good things. To factor in this humiliation was counterintuitive to all of the assumptions about the ministry of the Messiah. And for the apostles it seemed utter madness. How could the one who walked on water, how could the one who calmed the sea, how could the one who multiplied loaves and fishes, who had power over the demons, who had power over people, who had power over nature itself, how could he be thus humiliated? Any confession that denies Jesus' humiliation is wrong. Because denying Jesus' humiliation on the cross doesn't just deny his crucifixion, it ultimately denies the fullness of his humiliation. The incarnation is historically referred to as humiliation. Because that perfect uh, relationship and presence and fellowship that Jesus had with the Father is something that he set aside as he stepped into human flesh, hungering, thirsting, inevitably having a scratchy throat from time to time, enduring the pain of loss of friends, seeing the sin of the world, but indeed suffering on the cross as part of that suffering servant motif that we see so explicitly in the Old Testament. There are countless confessions over the ages that have denied the humiliation of Jesus. Islam denies that Christ went to the cross and saying that another one was made to look like him and take his place because Allah would never allow his servant to endure such a thing. One of the earliest heresies that popped up in the church was the, the heresy of Gnosticism, which denied that Jesus possessed a bodily form because that indeed would be too humiliating for God. So he just possessed a spiritual form. These, among many other heresies, some that popped up in the second century and some that persist to today, deny Jesus' humiliation. Jesus, in talking to Peter, faced this very same thing. Because notice what happens in verse 32. And he was stating the matter openly, talking about Jesus talking about his humiliation. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter had gumption. You have to give that to him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter goes from right to wrong. Why does he do that? How does he do that so quickly? Peter just got the answer. You are the Christ. Why does he do this? How does he, how does he get it mixed up? It's that misunderstanding of the fullness of messianic implications. It's the, maybe the fullness of a political messiah, maybe the fullness of a religious messiah, but not understanding that part and parcel of who this is, is again, the suffering servant, the one who must die, the one that must bear the reproach, the one who must be sent outside the camp. All of these Old Testament patterns had to be fulfilled in Jesus. Not just one, not just a few, but all of them. He had to receive the fullness of his people's sins. And part of that meant the fullness of his humiliation, even to death on a cross. Just as he must be humiliated, he would be exalted. But the humiliation had to come first. The Messiah was much more humble, again, than was expected. He'd be more exalted than expected, but he was more humble than expected. And so Christ quickly rebukes Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. So, as strong as Peter's uh, rebuke of Jesus was, Jesus comes back just as quickly. Why does he say, Get behind me, Satan? This is one of the best things to say to someone who you disagree with, by the way. But just do it very, very carefully. Why is he calling, was Peter possessed? Some people will say, ah, Jesus wouldn't have said this unless it was actually Satan who had taken over Peter in this moment. I don't think that's what's happening here. Remember, what is one of the core characteristics of the adversary? of the accuser, of the devil, of Satan. It is to move contrary to the work and the ministry of Christ. It is satanic to try to do anything that moves in a direction other than the ministry of Jesus. Even contemplate the temptation in the wilderness. It was an attempt to go around humiliation, That's precisely what Satan was offering Jesus. He was legitimately offering him. You don't have to be humbled, and you can have comfort, food, ministry, kingdoms. This is not dissimilar to what Peter is saying. Jesus, you don't need the fullness of this humiliation. You don't need to go through this. And so Jesus' ministry beginning with temptation in the wilderness by Satan, who is trying to get him to circumvent his humiliation... Now the pinnacle of of his ministry to his, his apostles also meets the same sort of resistance, where Peter, who should have known better, is trying to get Jesus to circumvent the humiliation that is necessary for him to be the true fulfillment of Messiah as prescribed by the Old Testament, but certainly more important, as set out from the foundation of the world by the triune Godhead. And so Jesus calls a spade a spade and says, you are acting just like the adversary. Interestingly, this is what the title of Antichrist has uh, the connotations of. Antichrist, sometimes based on popular fiction, popular Christian fiction over the last 20 and 30 years, is picked up as this one figure who will rise up, who is inevitably associated with the person who is on the opposite side of the political party of you, or ahead of an, an enemy nation, we don't find that in Scripture, by the way. It's just, again, popular Christian fiction. Antichrist, as defined by Scripture in the three times it is used, not in the book of Revelation, mind you, in John's epistle, says the spirit of Antichrist denies the Father and the Son, confesses Jesus is not from God, does not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. The spirit of Antichrist runs parallel to the satanic uh, confession that Jesus is less than what Scripture says he is. That he is less than who Scripture claims him to be. Peter's confession is like Satan's confession. Peter's attempt to get Jesus to circumvent the plan that was laid out by the Trinity before the foundation of the world is Antichrist. Now again, does this mean that Peter is immediately damned and that he falls into fire and brimstone, and they have to go and find another apostle right away. No. Again, Jesus is in the process of bringing his apostles from not seeing to seeing kind of in a fuzzy way to seeing more fully. This ought to be a great encouragement to us that Peter... The one who was so close to Christ had these falls, had these stumbles, had these bold attempts at doing what he thought was right, but were just so wrong, yet Christ stuck with him. We have a Jesus who is long-suffering. We have a Jesus who understands our weaknesses. We have a Jesus who didn't come to save people who are perfect, who had perfect confessions, who understood every bit of theology in a perfect way. We have a Jesus who came to save people who didn't understand and who don't understand, but in our humility are attempting in his spirit to understand more. So Peter sees more fully. He confesses that he is the Christ Christ. But he requires a quick course correction from Jesus because he doesn't see perfectly yet. Peter shows humility here. And we see it in other gospels of the same example about how Peter shows humility. But Peter doesn't have it right. We only have to think about what happens after Jesus is arrested and Peter's quick dismissals and denials of him. But Peter's story is one of an up and down sanctification. It is not a perfect ramping up from the moment of conversion till the moment when he goes to be with the Lord of every day being better than the day before it. But Peter stumbles and falls, but he is brought closer to Christ through the pardon of Christ's blood, through the ministry of Christ's church. What a wonderful encouragement for us. So we see that Jesus is the Christ, that he can't be anything else, that he must be humiliated and exalted. We can't jump to the exaltation before the humiliation. So who do people say that Jesus is? Let's fast forward this to today. Who do people say that Jesus is? In our family, as we sit around the dinner table, as we talk about current events, as we talk about worldview, as we talk about what is happening outside of our home, and even sometimes in the home, this is a wonderful question to ask. It's a wonderful question to ask to try to get our children to answer, but it's a wonderful question to ask to get us to answer, who do people say Jesus is? Because although as a culture and as a people we have fallen very, very far, people still have a vague conception of Jesus. Jesus. It might simply be because of an understanding of a crucifix or, or some sort of image that exists out there, but there's this still an idea of who Jesus is. Notice the, the, the thing that um, how, how Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, are you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Does the world set their mind on God's interests or man's? Now, there's a claim that, the ch- that Jesus has been used by the church. He's been used by the church to fit agendas. And to be perfectly clear, that is not wrong. Churches, lowercase c churches, over the years and still today, use Jesus to attempt to accomplish moral or political or other sorts of goals. And weaponizing Jesus in any way Is wrong because it inevitably takes away the fullness of who Jesus is. It maybe only picks and chooses aspects of his humiliation, picks and chooses aspects of his exaltation. But we also have to understand the church is not alone in using the name of Jesus. The culture is quick to cite the parts of Jesus's ministry that fit their narrative. Judge not lest you be judged. That's a perfectly acceptable citation of the mouth of the Messiah in our culture because it is seen as some sort of trump card against calling anything sin. Jesus and his ministry to the poor and to the outcast, to the marginalized, to the disenfranchised is something that people latch onto quickly. And we can't deny that that happened and it was good and it was true. But the go and sin no more part of those stories is often left out. Or Jesus' telling people to go and sin no more is sometimes used without the part of his ministering and spending time with and loving those who are marginalized. People, whether they be inside the church or outside of the church, have no problem in using the name of Jesus in bits and pieces for their particular purposes. That was Peter's problem. He wanted to only have the exalted Messiah, not the humiliated Messiah. Saying who Jesus is, church, is often and ultimately a test of orthodoxy. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you have the fullness of who Christ is? Who is he? Is he divine? Was he born of a virgin? Did he live a perfect life? Did he die a substitutionary, atoning death on the cross? Did he rise again three days later? And did he ascend to the right hand of the Father where he sits now reigning? All of those aspects are essential to being orthodox. Jesus is not just a good teacher, Jesus is not just a miracle worker, Jesus is not just an elevated, exalted man. Jesus is God in the flesh answering this question now we don't only have to say he is the Christ as Peter did but we have the fullness of the revelation of the word of God as given to us by the Holy Spirit such that this has to be our answer so the question is not to who people say Jesus is but who do you say Jesus is who do you say Jesus is and when it comes to answering this question, are you parroting something that you heard me say? Are you parroting something that you heard another pastor say? Are you parroting something that you heard your parents say? That might be the right answer, but is it arising from some place in yourself where it is a true representation of a confession that exists in your heart, in your faith? Do you confess that he is Christ, fully humiliated, but fully exalted? do you confess that he is the Christ? Not someone who you shape to fit your comfort. That the things that he says that drive a sharp, convicting point into your soul are the things that you brush aside. That he is only an image of of criticizing the sins that, you hate the most, the doctrines you like the most, the issues you care about most. We have to accept Christ for who he is. This is a standard that we quickly tell the culture about, but we ourselves are not immune to this either. We have to have a fully orbed Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, Prophet, priest, king, humble, yet exalted, fully God, fully man. This is the Christ that we must confess. This is what the title of Messiah entails. We cannot leave out portions that are uncomfortable or inconvenient to us because they demand us to deal with our issues. Those are the aspects of Christ we must run to most fully. The aspects of Christ that are most difficult for us, if they are biblical, are the ones that we ought to embrace in a way that changes us. Because it's not about us being being gotten by Jesus, it's about us getting Jesus. Jesus. It's about us understanding Him in His fullness. It's about us being transformed more into His likeness, not us finding quick and convenient and culturally appropriate ways to mold, shape, and mishandle His words so that it's easy and more palatable for us to get through a day of conviction and a day of engagement. He is the Christ. He can't be anything else, and His church ought to be the last ones to do that, of trying to form him in our image. As we close this morning, the supper is a great reorienting tool, and I say that in the most respectful way possible. This sacrament, this ordinance, is reorienting because what it does is it gives us, as we said already this morning in the Catechism, a tangible opportunity to consider both Christ's humiliation and his exaltation, both in his humanity and his, his humiliation reaching a zenith when his blood was shed and his body is broken. But the fact that this is a meal that is also an anticipatory meal a promised meal that we will enjoy with him in glory the supper allows us to dwell on both his humiliation and his exaltation and how we are called to join him in his humiliation as it says in 1 Corinthians in the words of institution that when you take the bread and you take the cup you preach you confess Christ's death until he comes. We preach that to ourselves inasmuch as we preach it to each other and to a watching world. So as John comes up to lead us in a song, I'll pray and ask you to come up and receive the elements for the Lord's Supper. Lord, let us have the humility that we ought to have, knowing that those who walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem, were not immune to not understanding. Here we are 2,000 years later with all of the noise, all of the distance of time and space, all of ourselves that we insert into every conversation, into every prayer, into every reading of scripture, into every moment of worship. Humble us, Lord. Humble us so that you may raise us up with you into the conformity of the image of your Son. Let us embrace him as Messiah and all that entails, all that that means. Humbled and exalted, God and man. Minister to us, by this means of grace that you have sovereignly established in the supper this morning. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.